0: Chapter Three of Strange Pages from Family Papers This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Strange Pages from Family Papers by T. F. Thistleton Dyer. Chapter Three Eccentric Vows No man takes or keeps a vow. But just as he sees others do, nor are they obliged to be so brittle as not to yield and bow a little, for as best tempered blades are found before they break to bend quite round, so truest oaths are still more tough, and though they bow, are breaking proof. Butler's Hudibras, Epistle to His Lady, Number 75.
1: Some two hundred and fifty years ago, The prevailing colour in all dresses was that shade of brown, known as the couleur Isabel, and this was its origin. A short time after the siege of Ostend commenced, at the beginning of the seventeenth century, Isabella Eugenia, Gouvernante of the Netherlands, incensed at the obstinate bravery of the defenders, is reported to have made a vow that she would not change a chemise till the town surrendered. It was a marvellously inconvenient vow for the siege, according to the precise historians thereof, lasted three years, three months, three weeks, three days, and three hours. And Her Highness's garment had wonderfully changed its colour, before twelve months of the time had expired. But the ladies and gentlemen of the court, in no way dismayed, resolved to keep their mistress in countenance, and, after a struggle between their loyalty and their cleanliness, they hit upon the compromising expedient— of wearing dresses of the presumed colour, finally attained by the garment which clung to the imperial archduchess by force of religious obstinacy. But, foolish and eccentric as was the conduct of Isabella Eugenia, there have been persons gifted, like herself, with sufficient mental power and strength of character, to keep the vows they have sworn. Thus, at a tournament held on the 17th of November, 1559, the first anniversary of Queen Elizabeth's succession. Sir Henry Lee, of Quarendon, made a vow that every year on the return of that auspicious day he would present himself in the Tilt-yard, in honour of the Queen, to maintain her beauty, worth, and dignity against all comers, unless prevented by infirmity, accident, or age. Elizabeth accepted Sir Henry as her knight and champion, and the nobility and gentry of the court formed themselves into an honourable society of knights, tilters, which held a grand tourney every 17th of November. But in the year 1590, Sir Henry, on account of his age, resigned his office, having previously, by Her Majesty's permission, appointed the famous Earl of Cumberland as his successor. On this occasion, the royal choir sang the following verses, as Sir Henry Lee's farewell to the court
0: my golden locks time hath to silver turned. O time too swift and swiftness never ceasing my youth gainst age and age at youth both spurned but spurned in vain youth waned by increasing beauty and strength and youth flowers fading bean duty faith love are roots and evergreen my helmet now shall make a hive for bees, And lovers' songs shall turn to holy psalms. A man-at-arms must now sit on his knees, And feed on prayers that are old age's arms, And so from court to cottage I depart, My saint is sure of mine unspotted heart. And when I sadly sit in homely cell, I'll teach my saints this carol for a song. Blessed be the hearts that wish my sovereign well, Cursed be the souls that think to do her wrong. Goddess, vouchsafe this aged man his right to be your beadsman now, that was your knight.
1: But not long after Sir Henry Lee had resigned his office of especial champion of the beauty of the sovereign, he fell in love with the new maid of honor, the fair Mrs. Anna Vavasor, who, though in the morning flower of her charms, and esteemed the loveliest girl in the whole court, drove a whole bevy of youthful lovers to despair by accepting this ancient relic of the age of chivalry.
2: Queen Isabella vowed to make a pilgrimage to Barcelona, and return thanks at the tomb of that city's patron saint if the infant Eulalie recovered from an apparently mortal illness, and Queen Joan of Naples honoured the knight Galeazzo of Mantua by opening the ball with him at a grand feast at her castle of Gaeta. At the conclusion of the dance, Galeazzo, kneeling down before his royal partner, vowed, as an acknowledgment of the honour he had received, to visit every country where feats of arms were performed, and not to rest, until he had subdued two valiant knights, and presented them as prisoners to the Queen, to be disposed of at her royal pleasure." After an absence of twelve months, Galeazzo, true to his vow, appeared at Naples, and laid his two prisoners at the feet of Queen Joan, but who, it is said, displayed commendable wisdom on the occasion, and—
3: declined her right to impose rigorous conditions on her captives, and gave them liberty without ransom.
2: Such cases, it is true, have been somewhat rare, for made oftentimes on the impulse of the moment— Unheedful vows, as Shakespeare says, may heedfully be broken, but, scarce as the records of unbroken vows may be, they are deserving of a permanent record, more especially as the direction of their eccentricity is, for the most part, in itself, curious and uncommon. Love, for instance, has been responsible for many strange and curious vows in the past and some years ago it was stated that the original of Charles Dickens's Miss Havisham was living in the flesh not far from Ventnor, in the person of an old maiden lady, who, because of the maternal objection to some love affair in her early life, made and kept a vow that she would retire to her bed, and there spend the remainder of her days. It was a stern vow, but she kept her word. "'And the years have come and gone,' and the house has never been swept or garnished, the garden is an overgrown tangle, and the eccentric lady has spent twenty years between the sheets. But whether this piece of romance is to be accepted or not, love has been the cause of many foolish acts, and many a disappointed damsel has acted in no less eccentric a fashion than Miss Havisham who was so completely overcome by the failure of Compisson to appear on the wedding morning, that she became fossilised, and gave orders that everything was to be kept unchanged, but to remain as it had been on that hapless day. Henceforth she was always attired in her bridal dress with lace veil from head to foot, white shoes, bridal flowers in her white hair, and jewels on her hands and neck, Years went on, the wedding-breakfast remained set on the table, while the poor, half-demented lady flitted from one room to another like a restless ghost. And the case is recorded of another lady whose lover was arrested for forgery on the day before their marriage was to have taken place. Her vow took the form of keeping to her room, sitting, winter and summer alike, at her casement, and waiting for him who was turning the treadmill, and who was never to come again.
3: On the other hand, vows have been made, but persons have contrived to rid themselves of the inconveniences without breaking them, reminding us of Benedict, who, finding the charms of his dear lady disdain too much for his celibate resolves, gets out of his difficulty by declaring that—
0: when i said i would die a bachelor i did not think i should live till i were married
3: equally ludicrous also is the story told of a certain man who greatly terrified in a storm vowed he would eat no haberdine but just as the danger was over he qualified his promise with
2: not without mustard o lord
3: and voltaire in one of his romances represents a disconsolate widow vowing that she will never marry again so long as the river flows by the side of the hill. But a few months afterwards the widow recovers from her grief, and, contemplating matrimony, takes counsel with a clever engineer. He sets to work, the river is deviated from its course, and, in a short time, it no longer flows by the side of the hill. The lady, released from her vow, does not allow many days to elapse before she exchanges her weeds for a bridal veil however far-fetched this little romance may be, a veritable instance of thus keeping to the letter of the vow, and neglecting the spirit, was recorded not so long ago. A Salopian parish clerk, seeing a woman crossing the churchyard with a bundle and a watering-can, followed her, curious to know what intentions might be, and discovered that she was a widow of a few months standing. Inquiring what she was going to do with the watering-pot, she informed him that she had been obtaining some grass-seed to grow on her husband's grave, and had brought a little water to make it spring up quickly. The clerk told her there was no occasion to trouble, the grave would be
1: green in good time. "'Ah, that may be,' she replied. "'But my poor husband made me take a vow not to marry again, until the grass has grown over his grave. And, having a good offer, I do not wish to break my vow.' or keep as I am longer than I can help.
0: But vows have not always been broken with impunity. Janet Dalrymple, daughter of the first Lord Stair, secretly engaged herself to Lord Rutherford, who was not acceptable to her parents, either on account of his political principles or his want of fortune. The young couple broke a piece of gold together, and pledged their troth in the most solemn manner. The young lady, it is said, imprecating dreadful evils on herself should she break her plighted faith. But shortly afterwards another suitor sought the hand of Janet Dalrymple, and when she showed a cold indifference to his overtures, her mother, Lady Stair, insisted upon her consenting to marry the new suitor, David Dunbar, son and heir of David Dunbar of Baldoon in Wigtonshire it was in vain that janet dalrymple confessed her secret engagement for lady stair treated this objection as a mere trifle lord rutherford apprised of what had happened interfered by letter and insisted on the rights he had acquired by his troth plighted with janet dalrymple but lady stair answered in a reply that
3: her daughter sensible of her undutiful behaviour in entering into a contract unsanctioned by her parents had retracted her unlawful vow, and now refused to fulfil her engagement with him.
0: Lord Rutherford rose again to Lady Stair, and
2: briefly informed her that, He declined positively to receive such an answer from any one but Janet Dalrymple. And accordingly
0: an interview was arranged between them, at which Lady Stair took good care to be present, with pertinacity insisting on the Levitical law which declares that a woman shall be free of a vow which her parents dissent from. While Lady Stair insisted on her right to break the engagement, Lord Rutherford in vain entreated Janet Dalrymple to declare her feelings, but she remained mute, pale, and motionless as a statue, and it was only at her mother's command, sternly uttered, she summoned strength enough to restore the broken piece of gold, the emblem of her troth. At this unexpected act, Lord Rutherford burst into a tremendous passion, took leave of Lady Stair with maledictions, and as he left the room, gave one angry glance at Janet Dalrymple, remarking,
2: "'For you, madam, you will be a world's
0: wonder,' a phrase denoting some remarkable degree of calamity. In due time, the marriage between Janet Dalrymple and David Dunbar of Baldoon took place the bride showing no repugnance, but being absolutely impassive in everything Lady Stair commanded or advised, always maintaining the same sad, silent, and resigned look. The bridal feast was followed by dancing, and the bride and bridegroom retired as usual, when suddenly the most wild and piercing cries were heard from the nuptial chamber, which at length became so hideous that a general rush was made to learn the cause, on opening the door, a ghastly scene presented itself, for the bridegroom was discovered lying on the floor, dreadfully wounded and streaming with blood. The bride was seen sitting in the corner of the large chimney, dabbled in gore, grinning, in short absolutely insane, and the only words she uttered were,
1: Take up your bonny bridegroom.
0: She survived this tragic event little over a fortnight, having been married on the 24th of August, and dying on the 12th of September. The unfortunate bridegroom recovered from his wounds, but, strange to say, he never permitted anyone to ask him, respecting the manner in which he had received them. But he did not long survive this dreadful catastrophe, meeting with a fatal injury by a fall from a horse, as he was one day riding between Leith and Holyrood House, As might be expected, various reports went abroad respecting this mysterious affair, most of them being inaccurate. But the story has gained a lasting notoriety from Sir Walter Scott having founded his Bride of Lammermoor upon it, who, in his introductory notes to that novel, has given some curious facts concerning this tragic occurrence, quoting an elegy of Andrew Simpson, which takes the form of a dialogue between a passenger and a domestic servant. The first, recollecting that he had passed Lord Stair's house lately, and seen all around enlivened by mirth and festivity, is desirous of knowing what has changed so gay a scene into mourning, whereupon the servant replies,
3: Sir, tis truth you have told. We did enjoy great mirth. But now, ah oh me, our joyful songs turned to an elegy. A virtuous lady, not long since a bride, was to a hopeful plant by marriage tied, and brought home hither. We did all rejoice, even for her sake, but presently her voice was turned to mourning for that little time that she enjoyed. She waned in her prime, for Atropos, with her impartial knife, soon cut her thread, and therewithal her life. And for the time we may it well remember, it being in unfortunate September, where we must leave her till the resurrection. Tis then the saints enjoy their full perfection.
0: Many a vow too rashly made has been followed by an equally tragic result, instances of which are to be met with in the legendary lore of our county families. A somewhat curious legend is connected with a monument in the church of Stoke Dabernon, Surrey. The story goes that two young brothers of the family of Vincent, the elder of whom had just come into his estate, were out shooting on Fairmile Common, about two miles from the village. They had put up several birds, but had not been able to get a single shot, when the elder swore with an oath that he would fire at whatever they next met with. They had not gone far before a neighbouring miller passed them, whereupon the younger brother reminded the elder of his oath, who immediately fired at the miller and killed him on the spot. Through the influence of his family, backed by large sums of money, no effective steps were taken to apprehend young Vincent. But, after leading a life of complete seclusion for some years, death finally put an end to the insupportable anguish of his mind.
3: A pretty romance is told of Furness Abbey, locally known as the Abbey Vows. Many years ago, Matilda, the pretty and much-admired daughter of a squire residing near Stainton, had been wooed and won by James, a neighbouring farmer's son. But, as Matilda was the only child, her father fondly imagined that her rare beauty and fortune combined would procure her a good match, little thinking that her heart was already given to one whose position he would never recognise. It so happened, however, that the young people, through force of circumstances, were separated, neither hearing nor seeing of each other for some years, At last, by chance, they were thrown together, when the active service in which James was employed had given his fine manly form an appearance which was at once imposing and captivating. Matilda, too, was improved in every eye, and never had James seen so lovely a maid as his former playmate. Their youthful hearts were disengaged, and they soon resolved to render their attachment as binding and as permanent as it was pure and undivided. The period arrived also when James must again go to sea, and leave Matilda to have her fidelity tried by other suitors. Both, therefore, were willing to bind themselves by some solemn pledge to live but for each other. For this purpose they repaired, on the evening before James's departure, to the ruins of Furness Abbey. It was a fine autumnal evening. The sun had set in the greatest beauty, and the moon was hastening up the eastern sky, and in the roofless choir they knelt near where the altar formerly stood and repeated in the presence of heaven their vows of deathless love they parted but the fate of the betrothed lovers was a melancholy one james returned his ship for foreign service and was killed by the first broadside of a french privateer with which the captain had injudiciously ventured to engage as for matilda She regularly went to the abbey to visit the spot
1: where she had knelt with her lover, and there, it is said, she would stand for hours with clasped hands, gazing on that heaven which alone had been witness to their mutual vows.
2: Another momentous vow, but one of a terribly tragic nature, relates to Samlesbury Hall, which stands about midway between Preston and Blackburn, and has long been famous for its apparition of the lady in white. The story generally told is that one of the daughters of Sir John Southworth, a former owner, formed an attachment with the heir of a neighbouring house, and nothing was wanting to complete their happiness except the consent of the lady's father. Sir John was accordingly consulted by the youthful couple, but the tale of their love for each other only increased his rage, and he dismissed them, with the most bitter denunciations.
0: No daughter of his should ever be united to the son of a family which had deserted
2: its ancestral faith, he solemnly vowed, and, to intensify his disapproval of the whole affair, he forbade the young man his presence for ever. Difficulty, however, only served to increase the ardour of the lovers, and after many secret interviews among the wooded slopes of the ribble, an elopement was arranged in the hope that time would eventually bring her father's forgiveness. But the day and place were unfortunately overheard by the lady's brother, who had hidden himself in a thicket close by, determined if possible to prevent what he considered to be his sister's disgrace. On the evening agreed upon, both parties met at the appointed hour, and as the young knight moved away with his betrothed, her brother rushed from his hiding-place, and in pursuance of a vow he had made slew him. After this tragic occurrence Lady Dorothy was sent abroad to a convent, where she was kept under strict surveillance, but her mind, at last, gave way. The name of her murdered sweetheart was ever on her lips, and she died a raving maniac. It is said that on certain clear still evenings a lady in white can be seen passing along the gallery and the corridors, and then from the hall into the grounds where she meets a handsome knight who receives her on his bended knees, and he then accompanies her along the walks. On arriving at a certain spot, in all probability the lover's grave, both the phantoms stand still, and as they seem to utter soft wailings of despair, they embrace each other, and then their forms rise slowly from the earth and melt away into the clear blue of the surrounding sky.
0: A strange and romantic story is told of Blenkinsop Castle, which too has long been haunted by a white lady. It seems that its owner, Brian de Blenkinsop, despite many good qualities, had an inordinate love of wealth which ultimately wrecked his fortune. At the marriage-feast of a brother warrior, with a lady of high rank and fortune, the health was drunk of Brian de Blenkinsop and his lady-love. But to the surprise of all present, Brian made a vow that, Never shall that be, until I meet with a lady possessed of a chest of gold heavier than ten of my strongest men can carry into my castle. Soon afterwards he went abroad, and after an absence of twelve years, returned, not only with a wife but possessed of a box of gold that took three of the strongest men to convey to the castle. A grand banquet was given in honour of his return, and, after several days feasting and rejoicing, vague rumours were spread of dissensions between the lord and his lady. One day the young husband disappeared, and never returned to Blenkinsop, nothing more being heard of him. But the traditionary account of this mystery asserts that his young wife, filled with remorse at her undutiful conduct towards him, cannot rest in her grave, but must wander about the old castle, and mourn over the chest of gold, the cursed cause of all their misery, of which it is supposed she, with the assistance of others, had deprived her husband. It is generally admitted that the cause of Brian de Blenkinsop's future unhappiness was the rash vow he uttered at that fatal banquet. Associated with this curious romance, there are current in the neighbourhood many tales of a more or less legendary character, but there has long been a firm belief that treasure lies buried beneath the crumbling ruins. According to one story given in Richardson's Table Book of Traditions, some years ago, two of the more habitable apartments of Blenkinsop Castle were utilised by a labourer of the estate and his family. But one night the parents were aroused by screams from the adjoining room, and, rushing in, they found their little son sitting up in bed terribly frightened. "'What's the matter?' "'The white lady! The white lady!' cried the boy. "'What lady?' asked the bewildered parents. "'There is no
2: lady here.' "'She's gone!' replied the boy, and she looked so angry because I would not go with her. She was a fine lady, and she sat down on my bedside and wrung her hands and cried sore. Then she kissed me and asked me to go with her, and she would make me a rich man, as she had buried a large box of gold many hundred years since, down in a vault, and she would give it me, as she could not rest so long as it was there. When I told her I durst not go, she said she would carry me, "'and was lifting me up when I cried out, and frightened her away.'
0: "'When the boy grew up, he invariably persisted in the truth of his statement, "'and at forty years of age could recall the scene so vividly as to make him shudder, "'as if still he felt her cold lips press his cheeks, "'and the death-like embrace of her wan arms.'
1: "'Equally curious is the old tradition told of Linton Castle, "'of which not a stone remains.' Although, once upon a time, it was as stately a stronghold as ever echoed to the clash of knightly arms. One evening there came to its gates a monk, who in the name of the Holy Virgin asked alms, but the lady of the castle liked not his gloomy brow, and bade him be gone. Resenting such treatment, the monk drew up his well knit frame, and vowed
2: All that is thine shall be mine, UNTIL IN THE PORCH OF THE HOLY CHURCH A LADY AND A CHILD SHALL STAND AND BECKON.
1: LITTLE HEED WAS TAKEN OF THESE ominous WORDS, AND AS YEARS PASSED BY A BARON SUCCEEDED TO THE LINTON ESTATES, WHOSE GREED WAS SUCH THAT HE DARED TO LAY HIS SACRILEGIOUS HAND EVEN UPON HOLY TREASURES. BUT AS HE sate AMONG HIS GOLD, THE BLACK MONK ENTERED, AND SUMMONED HIM TO HIS FEARFUL AUDIT, and his servants, aroused by his screams, found only a lifeless corpse. This was considered retribution for his sins of the past, and his son, taking warning, girded on his sword, and in Palestine did doughty deeds against the Saracen. By his side was constantly seen the mysterious black monk, his friend and guide. But at length the wine-cup and the smiles of lewd women lured him from the path of right, After a time the knight returned to Devonshire, and, lo, on the happy Sabbath morning, the chimes of the church-bells flung out their silver music on the air, and the memories of an innocent childhood woke up instantly in his sorrowing heart. In vain the black monk sought to beguile him from the holy fane, and whispered to him of bright eyes in a distant bower. He paused only for a moment. In the shadow of the porch stood the luminous forms of his mother and sister— "'who lifted up their spirit hands and beckoned. "'The knight tore himself from the black monk's grasp "'and rushed towards them, exclaiming,
0: "'I come, I come. Mother, sister, I am saved. "'Oh, heaven have pity on me!'
1: "'The story adds that the three were borne up in a radiant cloud. "'But the black monk leapt headlong into the depths of the abyss beneath, "'and the castle fell to pieces with a sudden crash.' and where its towers had stored statelily into the sunlit air, was now outspread the very desolation, the Valley of the Rocks. And thus the vow was accomplished. All that remains nowadays to remind the visitor of that stately castle and its surroundings, being a lonely glen in the Valleys of Rocks, where a party of marauders, it is said, were once overtaken and slaughtered.
3: In some cases churches have been built, in performance of vows, and at the Titchborne trial one of the witnesses deposed how Sir Edward Doughty made a vow, when his son was ill, that if the child recovered he would build a church at Poole. Contrary to all expectation, the child did recover most miraculously, for it had been ill beyond all hope, and Sir Edward built a church at Poole, and there it stands until this day. There are numerous stories of the same kind, and the peculiar position of the old church of St. Anthony, in Kirria, Cornwall, is accounted for by the following tradition. It is said that, soon after the conquest, as some Normans of rank were crossing from Normandy into England, they were driven by a terrific storm on the Cornish coast, where they were in imminent danger of destruction. In their peril and distress they called on St. Anthony, and made a vow that if he would preserve them from a shipwreck, they would build a church in his honour on the spot where they first landed. The vessel was wafted into the Durra Creek, and there the pious Normans, as soon as possible, fulfilled their vow. A similar tradition is told of Gunwallow Parish Church, which, a local legend says, was erected as a votive offering by one who here escaped from shipwreck, for, when he had miraculously escaped from the fury of the waves, he vowed that he would build a chapel in which the sounds of prayer and praise to God should blend with the never-ceasing voice of those waves from which he had but narrowly escaped. So near to the sea is the church, that at times it is reached by the waves, which have frequently washed away the walls of the churchyard. But vows of a similar nature have been connected with sacred buildings in most countries, and Vienna owes the Church of St. Charles to a vow made by the Emperor Charles VI during an epidemic, the silver ship, given by the Queen of St. Louis, was made in accordance with a vow. According to Joinville, the Queen said she wanted the King to beg he would make some vows to God and the Saints, for the sailors around her were in the greatest danger of being drowned.
2: Madam, I replied, "'vow to make a pilgrimage to my Lord St. Nicholas at Varongueville, and I promise you that God will restore you in safety to France. At least then, Madam promise him that if God shall restore you in safety to France, you will give him a silver ship of the value of five masses, and if you shall do this, I assure you that at the entreaty of St. Nicholas, God will grant you a successful voyage. Upon this she made a vow of a silver to St. Nicholas.
3: Similarly, there was a statue at Venice said to have performed great miracles— a merchant vowed perpetual gifts of wax candles in gratitude for being saved by the light of a candle on a dark night, reminding us of Byron's description of a storm at sea in Don Juan, canto 2.
0: Some went to prayers again and made vows of candles to their saints. Numerous vows of this kind are recorded, and it may be remembered how a certain empress promised a golden lamp to the church of Notre-Dame de Victoire in the event of her husband coming safely out of the doctor's hands, and as recently as the year 1867, attired in the garb of a pilgrim of the olden time, walked, in fulfilment of a vow, from Madrid to Rome, when she fancied herself at death's door. Many card-players and gamesters, unable to bear reverse, have made vows which they lacked the moral courage to keep, Dr. Norman MacLeod tells a curious anecdote of a well-known character who lived in the parish of Sedgley, near Wolverhampton, and who, having lost a considerable sum of money by a match at cock-fighting, to which practice he was notoriously addicted, made a vow that he would never fight another cock as long as he lived, frequently calling upon God to damn his soul to all eternity if he did, and with dreadful imprecations, wishing the devil might fetch him if he ever made another bet. For a time he adhered to his vow, but two years afterwards he was inspired with a violent desire to attend a cock-fight at Wolverhampton, and accordingly visited the place for that purpose. On reaching the scene he soon disregarded his vow, and cried, "'I hold four to three on such a cock.' "For what?' said one of his companions. Four shillings,' replied he
2: allay oh, said
0: the other upon which they confirmed the wager and as his custom was he threw down his hat and put his hand in his pocket for the money when he instantly fell down dead terrified at the sight some who were present for ever after desisted from this infamous sport but others proceeded in the barbarous diversion as soon as the dead body was removed from the spot
1: another inveterate gambler was colonel edgeworth who, on one occasion, having lost all his ready cash at the card-tables, actually borrowed his wife's diamond earrings, and staking them had a fortunate turn of luck, rising a winner. Whereupon he solemnly vowed never to touch cards or dice again. And yet it is said, before the week was out, he was pulling straws from a rick, and betting upon which should prove the longest. On the other hand, Tate Wilkinson relates an interesting anecdote of John Wesley, who in early life was very fond of a game of whist, and every Saturday was one of a constant party at a rubber, not only for the afternoon, but also for the evening. But the last Saturday that he ever played at cards, the rubber at whist was longer than he expected, and, on observing the tediousness of the game, he pulled out his watch, and to his shame he found it was some minutes past eight, which was beyond the time he had appointed for the Lord. He thought the devil had certainly tempted him beyond his hour. He suddenly, therefore, gave up his cards to a gentleman near him to finish the game, and left the room, making a vow never to play with the devil's pages, as he called them, again. That vow he never broke. Political vows, as is well known, have a curious history, and an interesting incident is told in connection with one of the ancestors of Sir Walter Scott it appears that Walter Scott, the first of Rabon, by Anne Isabel, his wife, daughter of William MacDougall, had two sons, William, direct ancestor of the Lairds of Rabon, and Walter, progenitor of the Scots of Abbotsford. The younger, who was generally known by the curious appellation of bearded Watt, from a vow which he had made to leave his beard unshaven until the restoration of the Stuarts reminds us of those Serbian patriots, who, during the bombardment of Belgrade thirty years ago, made a vow that they would never allow a razor to touch their faces until the thing could be done in the fortress itself. Five years afterwards, in 1867, the Serbians marched through the streets of Belgrade, with enormous beards, preceded by the barbers, each with razor in hand, and entered the fortress to have the last office of the vow performed on them. End of chapter 3